0: where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Chapter One of England and the Hundred Years' War. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Pamela Nagami. England and the Hundred Years' War by Charles William Chadwick Oman. Chapter 1. From the Accession of Edward III to the Fall of Mortimer, 1327 to 1331. On the 7th of January, 1327, the Parliament of England, duly assembled at Westminster, declared that their king, Edward of Carnarvon, was deposed, and that they had chosen in his stead his eldest son, Edward, Prince of Wales, to fill the vacant throne. In all the long annals of the nation, no reign has ever commenced under such shameful auspices as the fifty years' rule of King Edward III. His miserable, shiftless father had been deposed, not so much by the will of the nation, as by the private enmity of an unfaithful wife and a faction of disloyal barons. He had perhaps deserved to lose his crown, but not by such means, nor by the hands of such enemies. Moreover, heavy as is the guilt which rests on the conspirators who dethroned him, the nation must take its share in the blame. The mass of the baronage and the people stood aside, while Queen Isabella and her adherents worked their wicked will on the king and his friends, and hardly a voice was raised to protest against the violence and cruelty which accompanied the revolution. The mob of London made itself the accomplice of the traitors by tearing to pieces Bishop Stapleton of Exeter, one of the late monarch's few faithful followers. No complaint was made in Parliament concerning his murder nor concerning the equally illegal execution of the Earl of Arundel and the two dispensers, whom the Queen had slain without due process of law. No one protested save four courageous prelates when the wretched time-serving Archbishop Reynolds cried aloud that the voice of the people was the voice of God, and pretending to take the cries of a noisy faction for the fiat of heaven saluted the young Edward of Windsor as his king. So, with surroundings, of the basest cruelty, hypocrisy, and cowardice, the new reign began. Of those whose names appear in the shameful business of the fall of Edward II, the young boy in whose behalf the transaction was nominally carried out must bear the least blame. The new king was only fourteen years and two months old at his accession, having been born on November thirteenth, 1312. He had been neglected by his father and had been of late in his mother's hands. There is no reason to believe that he suspected the cause which lay at the bottom of her actions, the hatred which she felt for her husband since she had become infatuated with the handsome, unscrupulous exile, Roger of Mortimer. In after years, we know that he felt bitter shame for the way in which he had been made the tool of his mother and her paramour. Meanwhile he accepted the situation and freely set his hand to all the documents and deeds which they laid before him. He seems to have shown no anxiety about the fate of his father when the dethroned king was removed from Kenilworth to Berkeley Castle and put under jailers who were bent on compassing his death. Of the sinister purpose of the transference he had no suspicion. To guide the steps of the young king, the Parliament, in January 1327, appointed a council of regency of four earls, four bishops, and six barons. But from the first, the real power lay in the hands of Queen Isabella, whose word was all-powerful with her son. Behind Isabella, unseen at first but growing more and more evident as the months rolled on, was the will and influence of her favorite Mortimer. They kept the young Edward in their hands, secluded him as much as possible from intercourse with those who were not of their own faction, and endeavored to the best of their ability to distract him from affairs of state. It was long before the baronage and the nation realized the true condition of affairs, and longer still before the king awoke to a consciousness of the shameful tutelage in which he was living. At first, public affairs were conducted with some decent semblance of constitutional government. The old charters of the realm were confirmed, lavish promises of good government were made to Parliament, and persons who had been attainted in the reign of Edward II were restored to their honours and estates. Mortimer's power was not yet openly shown, and moreover, a new danger soon arose to distract the nation's attention. Less than three months after the young king's accession, the Scots broke the truce, which had been concluded with them in the year 1323, and came flooding over the border into Northumberland and Durham, savagely wasting the whole countryside as far as the Weir and the Tees. King Robert Bruce was no longer at their head. He was already stricken down by the leprosy of which he afterwards died but two of his old companions in arms, Sir James Douglas and Randolph, Earl of Murray, were leading the raiders. Twenty thousand moss troopers, mounted on light Galloway nags, and showed themselves quite capable of carrying out their master's usual tactics. To repel this invasion, the young king himself took the field. Mortimer accompanied him, for he never let Edward stir far from his side. The whole feudal host and shire levies of England followed them but no good fortune attended their march. The Scots were found waiting behind the Tyne in a post too strong to be attacked in front. When the English, by a tollsome march, turned their flank, the agile enemy was found to have already decamped, and to have fallen back on a second position as strong as the first. Mortimer would not risk an attempt to storm it. The memory of Bannockburn was still fresh in English memories." and again when he proceeded to move around to cut off the invaders from their retreat, Douglas avoided him by a night march and was in safety long ere his slow-moving enemy had reached the point of vantage. So Edward's army followed the Scots for a time, always arriving too late, and always finding nothing but blazing villages and slaughtered cattle to show where the foe had been. The only striking incident in the campaign was a night attack which Douglas made with a small party on the royal camp. He cut his way far among the tents and almost captured the young king, whose chaplain was slain in the scuffle. Then he turned back and escaped unharmed. When the Scots were far on their way towards the Tweed, the English gave up pursuit and returned to Newcastle, utterly foiled and nearly starved by their long wanderings on the Northumbrian moors. Such was the inglorious introduction to war of the future victor of Slaus and Crecy, August to September, 1327. It was perhaps in consequence of this shameful failure to cope with the Scots, and in fear of the discontent that it might breed against the new government, that the Queen and Mortimer resolved to murder the dethroned King. The strong constitution of Edward II had resisted the harsh treatment and cruel privations to which he had been exposed in his prison at Berkeley. Finding that he did not show any signs of dying, they resolved to put an end to him. Their creatures were introduced into the castle at night and secretly slew him, September 21, 1327. His death was long concealed, and when it was divulged, was attributed to natural causes or a broken heart. Another such campaign as the last, which recalled the worst misadventures of the reign of the late king, would have ruined the credit of the new government. Accordingly, the Queen and Mortimer resolved to make peace at any price with the Scots. Negotiations with the Bruce were carried on all through the winter of 1327 and 28, and since the English were resolved on coming to terms, reached a successful issue. By the Treaty of Northampton, which men call the shameful peace, the independence of the northern realm was fully conceded, May 4, 1328. Edward was made to sign away all claims of feudal superiority of any kind over Scotland, so that for the first time since Anglo-Saxon days, the King of Scots, could call himself without dispute a wholly independent sovereign. The Scottish regalia and royal treasures, together with the records of the realm which Edward I had brought to London, were restored. With them would have gone the famous Stone of Scone, which still lies under the throne in Westminster Abbey, if a mob of Londoners had not fallen upon the workmen who were removing it. The King of England also promised to give his sister Joan, a little girl of seven, in marriage to Bruce's young son David. The Scots, on the other hand, promised to restore to their estates the barons of their realm, who had been exiled for adhering to the English party, and to pay twenty thousand pounds in three installments, in satisfaction for all claims for damage and compensation for the harm which they had done in their many raids into England. It was only when the danger from the Scottish war had been staved off that Mortimer began to show openly his haughty temper and his disregard of the laws. He got himself created Earl of March and took upon him such state as no subject of the realm had ever before dared to display. A hundred and eighty men-at-arms followed him wherever he went and were used to overawe any of the barons who showed a wish to oppose him. At the Parliament of Salisbury in the autumn of 1328, he came with so many armed followers at his back that most of the other peers who had been bidden to attend without large retinues fled away to Winchester, fearing that they were about to be seized and imprisoned. Moreover, men began to take note of his relations with the Queen. They were so much together and so familiar in their intercourse that the truth began to be suspected. Nevertheless, it was to be three years before the favorite was overthrown, and ere his fall he was to do much more evil. Among the young king's nearest relatives were his two half-uncles, Edmund, Earl of Kent, and Thomas, Earl of Norfolk, the sons of the second marriage of Edward I. These two princes joined with Henry, Earl of Lancaster, who had done so much to overthrow the late king in resenting Mortimer's influence. They felt that they, and not this upstart who ruled by the Queen's favor, ought to have the final word in the governance of the realm. Kent took the lead and drew upon himself the main brunt of Mortimer's anger. A disgraceful plot was laid to compass his destruction. He was secretly informed that his brother, Edward II, was still alive, kept in strict confinement in Corfe Castle. Such corroboration to the story was furnished by the governor of the place that Kent was fully persuaded of its truth and wrote letters to his supposed brother in which he proposed to free him and replace him on the throne. The documents were promptly passed on to Mortimer, who, when they were once in his hands, seized Kent's person, tried him for high treason, and had him beheaded the moment that he was condemned. The young king was induced to set his hand to the death warrant by being told that his uncle's plan included his own murder by poison. Only eight days elapsed between the arrest and the execution, so that Kent's friends had no time to attempt anything in his behalf, March 1330. Mortimer seized upon his victim's lands, which added to the plunder of the dispensers, which was already in his hands, made him almost the wealthiest personage in the realm." Kent had been well liked by the baronage and people. He was a courteous, kindly, and liberal prince, against whom no one bore any grudge. Hence his fate provoked bitter murmurings and awoke the nation to a sense of its disgraceful plight. The guilty relations of the Queen and Mortimer were growing daily more evident, as long impunity made them less cautious. The true story of the death of Edward II was also beginning to be brooded about. Hence, discontent grew every day more marked, and Mortimer's cruel plot against Kent may be said to have brought about his own ruin. When men began to ask each other whether the late king had been dethroned merely in order that a vicious Frenchwoman and a bloodthirsty upstart might rule England at their will, it was evident that the end was drawing near. The blow, however, was not to be dealt by any popular rising, but by an unexpected hand the young king himself was at last moved to action. For more than three years he had let himself be led by his mother and Mortimer, but at last he was developing a will of his own. He was now eighteen, had married a wife, the fair and virtuous Philippa of Hainaut, and had just become the father of a son, Edward, so well known afterwards as the Black Prince he at last began to use his own eyes and to take counsel of others than his mother's partisans. Gradually he began to realize that he was but the tool of Mortimer. Accordingly, he prepared to make an end of this state of things. In October 1330 the court was staying at Nottingham, and the Queen and Mortimer lay in the castle, whose gates were well guarded by their retinue. But the King opened his purpose to the Governor Sir William Eland, who feared to disobey him, and consented to show him a secret passage by which he could enter without rousing Mortimer's followers. At midnight, Edward, accompanied by his friend William, Lord Montacute, and a few more armed men were let into the castle and made for the apartments of the favorite. Mortimer was surprised as he sat conferring with the Bishop of Lincoln and seized before he could offer resistance but a scuffle ensued, swords were drawn, and two knights were slain before the king's party got the upper hand. The queen burst out of her chamber and threw herself at her son's knees, begging him to spare her gentle Mortimer, but she was dragged away and the earl was cast into bonds, October nineteenth, 1330. A month later the king called Parliament together and put the earl on his trial before the peers for murdering Edward II, for overawing the Parliament of Salisbury by armed force, for usurping several royal castles and manors without legal warrant, and for having applied to his own private expenses a large part of the twenty thousand pounds paid by the Scots. Without troubling themselves to go through the form of a trial, the peers voted that all the charges contained in the articles of accusation were notoriously true— and that the Earl Marshal should take custody of Roger, Earl of March, and execute him as a traitor and enemy of the king and realm. Accordingly, he was hung, drawn, and quartered at Tyburn on November 29, 1330. His chief counsellor, Sir Simon Bereford, was also condemned and put to death. John Maltravers and Thomas Gurney, the underlings who had actually murdered King Edward II, were not captured, they were proclaimed traitors and a price set on their heads. Gurney was soon afterwards apprehended in Spain by King Alfonso of Castile and sent homeward in chains. He died on the way and thus escaped punishment. The fate of the guilty Queen Dowager remained to be settled. After consideration, Edward III resolved to do no more than relegate his mother to her manor of castle rising, which he was never allowed to quit. She was granted the ample allowance of three thousand marks and not put in strict confinement. She survived nearly thirty years and only died in 1358. Thus all traces of the shameful misgovernment of the years 1327 to 1330 were swept away. The heirs of the Earl of Kent and other victims of Mortimer were restored to their honors and lands. Pardons were made out for all who had resisted the favorite, and the officials whom he had appointed were obliged to take out fresh grants of their places. A new leaf in the history of the nation was turned over, and the young king began to rule as well as to reign. End of chapter one. Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.